Finding a place to hunt is one of the hardest things when it comes to hunting public lands. Today, I'm going to give you one more option that you have in your toolbox, and that is talking about hunting on military bases. This is the Beyond Hunter Ed podcast, where the focus is on all the questions you wish were answered in the classroom and quite a few more. So whether you're an accomplished lifer or a complete newbie, and you're looking to discuss all topics hunting in an entertaining and unfiltered way, you've come to the right place. I'm your host, Eric Jaitner. All right, well, here we are in July. Everybody's getting ready for the hunting season to come up. I know I am. It's getting to be long. It's hot. It's miserable outside. Just not my favorite time of year. So what can you be doing right now? Well, outside of scouting, which I highly recommend, and I spend a lot of my weekends out scouting, but during the week, I also like to get into league shooting for archery. Ended up just getting back from a league shoot today. Good group of guys, good group of people out there shooting. It was a lot of fun. Didn't shoot my best, but that's okay. I got to practice. I put a little pressure on myself. We talked in previous episodes about how to put pressure on yourself to make yourself a better shot in the field. Well, league shooting helps with that too. You get to form friends with people who are into the same type of thing you are. And hey, it improves your shooting. Even if you don't have your best night, just putting in the practice is going to make you better in the long run. You're not always going to have your best day while you're out in the field. So if your not best night is still hitting everything in the 9 and the 10 ring, well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty solid day because, hey, that's still a dead deer. That's still a dead elk. That's still a dead pig. No matter what, as long as you're practicing, it's helping you out. Another big benefit of league shooting is, like I said, not only do you meet people in the community, you start hearing about different areas in your in your area where, hey, there might be some good places to hunt. I've ended up hunting on people's property because met them in league shoots and they're like, hey, yeah, come on over and ended up hunting with them. Ended up being good buddies back in Wisconsin when I was growing up. So, hey, it's just a good option to get out there, meet people in the same community. You never know what's going to come of that. And the other side of that is, is it's usually pretty reasonable. Most bow shops run league shooting of some sort and the rates are relatively reasonable it's i mean for them it's a chance to get you in the store and maybe buy stuff so it's kind of a win-win i know i have spent a fair amount of money in bow shops and yeah they they usually come out ahead on this one because hey it is what it is you know i mean sometimes you just got to look at it and you go boys with their toys and well they know how i work we'll just put it that way we'll leave it there they know how I work, and sometimes I just can't stop myself from new sight, new rest, new bow. Depends on where I'm at. But, uh, yeah, that's why they have these things. And But you're getting something out of it, too. You're definitely meeting new people, meeting people who are into it as well. And it puts some pressure on you, makes you shoot a little different. I can tell you today, I didn't shoot my best, but... I think a lot of that had to do with the pressure that was being put on just by the simple fact there were other people around. It wasn't as comfortable. If you ever shot league before, it's close quarters. You're standing right next to everybody's, you know, stacked up in a line. 
And you really only, I mean, if you put your bow down and reach your fingers out in front, you're going to touch the guy in front of you. And the guy behind you is going to do the same. So you're close to each other. It really makes you focus on blocking out all the stuff that's going on around you and just focus on your sight pin, focus on the target and execute your shot properly, which is exactly what you need to be doing while you're hunting. There's going to be a lot going on around you. But at that moment in time, the only thing that matters is what your sight picture is and executing that shot properly. And I really do think league shooting can help you with that. So that's just my plug for getting out there, getting some league shooting in. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm really enjoying it. Going to give a shout out to Willow Creek Archery here in Escondido. That's where I'm shooting this time. Love it. Good group of guys. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to finish this league up and jump into another one. But with that said, let's jump into actually talking about hunting on military bases. All right. Now, this is this is some good stuff here. This is solid gold because most people don't realize you can hunt on military land. And the DOD owns and manages roughly 8.8 million acres across the country. And the last estimate I saw was that 75% of military bases are open to some form of public hunting. That's a huge chunk of land. That's 6.6 million acres of public hunting land that you can go ahead and do this on. So my first introduction was down in Florida at Eglin Air Force Base while I was going to school there. And I was able to hunt and harvest a white-tailed deer, my first white-tailed deer with a bow on Eglin Air Force Base. It was great. Um, honestly, didn't see many other hunters. And I'm going to say that is a trend that I have noticed with military base hunting. There is minimal pressure on these lands. And I'm going to go into later why that is. But some of the areas that you can go that I know of for sure, like I said, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Here in California, we got Fort Hunter Liggett, Camp Pendleton, Camp Roberts, and Vandenberg Air Force Base. They're all open to some form of public hunting. Some with more restrictions than others, but they're all open. In Colorado, you got Fort Carson. That's another option for you. Pretty much all of these bases are open to the public in general. It's not just base dependents or people who are in the military or civil servants. The majority of these are open to the general public. Not all, but the majority. So I'm going to step you through my process of how I got into Fort Hunter Liggett, which is where I started going now. And I'm going to tell you why I go there as well. So the process you have to go through is it works through the iSportsman website. So you got to go, go ahead and Google iSportsman. It'll come up. The first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to create a profile. Then you're going to have to do a background check for the base you're going to go on. And for your background check, you have to give them your driver's license number, your address, you know, all the identifying information. So they can basically run a background check on you. Um, I guess it makes sense. It's a military base. I mean, I don't know that I want just some random person, you know, running around on the military bases. That's, there's still important information there. So it makes sense that they want to make sure that people are limited and who can go in there. So anyway, you got your background check. The next step is you're going to have to go through all the briefs, all this range safety briefs. So the first one that you have to do at Fort Hunter Liggett is 
just the range safety brief. Then they have a specific UXO brief. And for those of you who don't know what UXO stands for, UXO is unexploded audience. So yeah, not exploded bombs. Okay, that tends to scare a lot of people off. But I'm going to tell you right now, I have explored a lot of different bases, especially in my time in the military, um, hunting, have not yet run across a UXO. That doesn't mean they aren't there, but they're rare. So I would not let that deter you from getting out there and looking around. So after the UXO brief, you're going to have to do the orientation brief. This one is going to be kind of the more important of the two, three, in my opinion, because this is the one that really tells you what the process is going to be. And so, for example, on every military base I've ever hunted on, you've had a check-in and check-out process. You have to check in in the morning and say, I'm going into this, this training area to hunt. And then you have to check out when you're done. And that's their way of keeping track of who's all in the training areas, making sure everybody gets out at the end of the day, making sure they don't have live fire going on in a training area when people are out there hunting or yeah, basically telling you, you can't go into these areas if they're going to have live fire training exercises going on. It is kind of weird while you're out there hunting and you hear, you know, bombs going off, you hear people running, you know, M60s in the background, you just hear everything kind of going off a 50 cal, just, just lighting up a hillside. It's different, but you know, I mean, it's usually a long way away. Obviously they wouldn't let you in there otherwise, but you do definitely get to hear that while you're out hunting. It, it just is a different sense of hunting. The animals really don't seem to mind because most of these training areas, they're being used constantly. So the animals are used to that. Now they're still going to mind if you, you know, show up 50 yards in front of them, they're going to take off because, well, that's not normal. But just having, you know, a 50 cal going off in the background, it's not really a big deal for them. Okay, so after you get through all your briefs, they're going to have you register your weapons. At least at Fort Hunter Leggett, I had to register my weapons. I had to tell them what I was bringing into the base. So I was bringing my uh, bolt-action rifle. I was bringing my muzzleloader. I was bringing my shotgun. And then I brought my air rifle. And they wanted serial numbers on all of them. On the archery equipment, they just want to know, do you have a compound bow, a long bow? That's about it. That's all they're asking for there. But you had to give serial numbers on your rifles and... All right, that's the rules. That's the that's the price of admission, we'll say. Speaking of price of admission, the next part is in order for them to keep this process going, they do have to charge admission for this one. It's really not that bad. At Fort Hunter Liggett, the annual fees for fishing is an extra 20 bucks. Hunting is 125. If you're a disabled vet of any degree, just any degree disabled vet, it's only 40, and obviously for active duty, it's much less. Junior hunters are only like 30 bucks and you can have a guest pass. So if you have somebody who's not into hunting, but wants to come along with you, that's another five bucks. So they're not insane prices for what you're getting. And when I say for what you're getting, well, okay, so let's go through. What are you getting? Okay. So one of the biggest things that I've mentioned already is there's limited pressure. At Fort Hunter Liggett, they allow four hunters per square mile. Okay, so there's 640 acres in a square mile. 
So each hunter has, if they fill the training areas, which I have not seen them fill the training areas yet, but if they filled that training area, each hunter would have approximately 160 acres to themselves. Think about that. Think about that, you guys who go hunting in the national forests. Up in Wisconsin, national forest, I can tell you I have run into hunters on far smaller properties than 160 acres. But when you get out to these military bases, every hunter technically has about 160 acres to hunt on. And that's if they fill it. I've never seen it get filled. Each training area is going to have its own requirements, at least where I went, where some of them you can only take archery equipment into. Some of them you can only take what they call primitive weapons. So primitive weapon would be air gun, shotgun, muzzle loader, bow and arrow, pretty much anything but a rifle. Um, others are just wide open. Some other rules you're going to run into is... You're going to have to remove your tree stand at the end of the day. They're not going to let you cut any vegetation. You know, the basic stuff like that. But honestly, what you're really getting is a much better experience in my mind. I know on my last day and a half trip up hunting in Fort Hunter Liggett, I saw more wildlife in one and a half days in the field than I would normally see. Same state, just four and a half hours south where I live than I would see there in five days of hunting straight. I saw more animals, more wildlife, a greater diversity of wildlife. So not just deer, not just deer and turkey, but deer, turkeys, elk, pig, quail, dove, you name it, everything was out there. There's just a lot more animals. There's a lot less pressure. So, you know, I mean, it's an option. If you're close to a military base or you're within, you know, four or five hours of a military base, give it a try. It's not a bad option for sure. And you might find out you really like it. All right. So I really like keeping my finger on what's going on in, in wildlife news. And I'm coming back to California this time. Well, this one is not a great story, but apparently we've had a Edinburgh hemorrhagic disease, AHD, outbreak in Northern California. So this one, they're, they're attributing to baiting and feeding of deer, residential feeding of deer. And basically, California doesn't have the greatest area for, for deer. Um, we don't have huge populations. And a lot of that comes down to feed. But when you put an artificial food source out, the Department of Fish and Wildlife is saying basically getting everything to eat off of the same food source is what caused this. So I'm not going to get into what caused it, what's going on. But what I do like to do is when I see things like this, okay, we've had an AHD outbreak in Northern California. Well, that's something we want to look at. It's been going on since May, according to this article. And I'll have the article up in the website. So if you want to take a look, go ahead. But for all you guys out in California, if you're thinking about where to go hunt next year or the year after that, you may want to take a look at this and see, you know, okay, so is the population down? Do I want to hunt that area 
really quick here. Well, if it's just an over-the-counter tag, maybe you do. It's a great area to go hunt. It's a beautiful countryside to go explore. But if you're going to burn points on a hunt, you might not want to go into a place that was just hit with AHD. The numbers are going to be down. You probably won't have the same age class bucks. You probably won't have the same, you know, opportunity to harvest the animal you're looking for. So that's just something to think about when you're planning your hunts. And that's why keeping your, keeping your finger on the news can help you out planning your hunts in the future. So, all right, just to quick do a recap here. We talked about getting in there, getting some league shooting in, doing something fun, meeting some people in the same environment and or the same community. Get out there, meet them, and have some fun while you're doing it. Shoot, push yourself. Then we talked a little bit about what was going on in the news here with the AHD, the hemorrhagic disease outbreak that California is trying to contain. And the meat of this episode was all about hunting on military bases. And I really encourage anybody out there to go ahead, just Google hunting military bases and your home state or your neighboring states and see what you have available to you. I bet there's a lot more than what you even imagine. And with that being said, I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Beyond Hunter Ed Podcast. And as always, if you have questions, please email us at questions at beyondhuntered.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.beyondhuntered.com. Beyond Hunter Ed.